As we kick off the Advent season today, we are also at the same time concluding the Daniel Project, our study in the book of Daniel, where we have been learning together what it means to live as an exile, what it means to live far, far away from our true home, but still close to God. And if you were here last week, you will remember that we covered quite a bit of territory, three chapters, Daniel 7 through 9. In those chapters, we encountered a very unusual genre of writing called apocalyptic, and we dug into some prophetic visions that God gave to Daniel, and we were asking what those visions mean for our lives today. Well, today we're going to do a somewhat similar thing by taking on three more chapters, Daniel 10 through 12, the final three chapters of the book. And so you want to get your Bible open to the end of Daniel. As we get started, you know, each week as a pastor, when I'm planning what I will preach about, I'm confronted with many different kinds of options and choices. I have to think very carefully about what it is that will draw people's attention. And there are church growth experts who remind pastors that there are three particular topics that always draw a crowd. People really want to hear about these three subjects. The experts say, you know, if you really want to grow a church, you really want to have a lot of people, you should preach on sex. You should preach on the end times. And then the most important question of all, you should preach on will there be sex in the end times. (laughs) Now today, we're going to talk about just one of those topics. We're going to talk about sex in the end times. Um, Just kidding, actually. That's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, Daniel 10 through 12 is about the end times. And uh, it gives us some very important insights as well into the role that, that prayer and spiritual warfare play in God's sovereign plan. Now, you're going to see this very quickly, but there are very few passages in the Bible that are more complex and fascinating than these three chapters. And as we encounter Daniel's final vision about the end times, we also get taken behind the scenes of the supernatural world. We get taken into the the scenes of the angelic and the demonic. And we also get a glimpse into the real power of prayer. Now, to do all of this uh, in a way that I think is most helpful, I want to back up even a little further as we get started into chapter 9 for a few minutes. And then we're going to spend most of our time together in chapter 10. And and at the end, we're going to take a few minutes to summarize chapters 11 and 12. And and you may have noticed that your message outline sheet was kind of empty. Now, that's by design. There's going to be a different structure today. There's going to be some insights along the way. You feel free to take notes um, as you would like. So we begin with Daniel 9, chap, uh, chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. It says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. That's that phrase that's also translated greatly loved. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, last week we took a brief look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, but here what we see is what happened next. And by next, I mean next. While he was praying, the angel Gabriel came rushing in to give Daniel the answer to his prayer. 
Anybody have anything remotely like this happen in your quiet time recently? Probably not, but it happens to Daniel. And it shows us a very important truth, and that is that prayer unleashes God's power and activity in our lives. And we see, if we read Daniel's prayer, two vital elements of prayer. The heart of Daniel's prayer was confession and petition. Daniel was asking God for forgiveness, and he was asking God for help. This is very crucial. Confession and petition are always the heartbeat of prayer. So I want to ask you this morning, are you on a regular basis, a daily basis, coming before God and asking God to make you clean? Are you coming before God and allowing God to search your soul? And are you coming to God on a regular basis and bringing him your needs and your cares and your anxieties, your requests for other people and other situations? These two patterns of prayer position Daniel for what happened next. Confession and petition led to what we see happening here. Because Daniel prayed this way, the angel Gabriel tells him, as soon as you began to pray, that's why I come. So here's an angel of God telling him that because he prayed, spiritual forces were unleashed. And I doubt that Daniel ever prayed a casual prayer again. Let me ask you a question. This is something to think about. Do you think that this was an isolated event. Someone prays and God immediately sends an angel. Do you think that this just happened because, you know, Daniel's Daniel and prayer never works like this for anyone else? Or do you think that prayer works like this for us as well? Now, I think most of us would say, well, I think it's probably a Daniel deal because nobody prays today and has that happen. I mean, I've never had it happen. And here's what I want you to think about. I actually would disagree. Now, no doubt this is a dramatic occurrence, one that God gives to Daniel as a revelation in regard to a vision. But the idea that prayer unleashes the power and activity of God, including angelic activity, is clearly taught in the Bible. And what we have here is not an isolated event. What we have is one of those rare times when the the curtain is pulled back and what happens always in the supernatural realm when we pray gets exposed to us. I think that if you could see what happens when you pray, when you come before God with a confessing heart and clean hands, when you petition God as his greatly esteemed greatly loved child. If you could see what happens spiritually, supernaturally, I think it would blow you away. See, our praying really ultimately in its essence is no different than Daniel. And we must not miss the Bible's clear teaching that the prayer of a person who is walking with God is powerful. James 5.16 reminds us the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Every prayer is answered. We've talked about this before. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Now, God doesn't always answer us the way we expect or we hope, right? Sometimes he answers no. Sometimes he answers later. But every prayer is answered the moment it cascades off our lips. And this reality, if we will take it in, should drive us to our knees with intensity Now, what did the angel tell Daniel in response to his prayer? Daniel had prayed for mercy. He'd prayed for deliverance from the coming darkness. And in response, God sends Gabriel with a prophetic message that we get in verses 24 to 27. It says, 
77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, I'm sure that I don't really need to explain this at all to you because you already perfectly understood everything that I just read, right? You know, I'm looking out here and I'm seeing smoke coming out of a few ears and some people's eyes are kind of crossed right now. <laughs> this is a lot of material to take in, right? And uh, the, the truth is we could do multiple messages on just these two verses. But what I want to give to you today uh, more than anything else, is the central message in all this prophetic detail that, that God wants Daniel to hear from Gabriel. And it is this, and this is going to sound familiar. God has placed all history on a timetable, and it is unfolding at his command. This is another way of explaining the central theme of Daniel that we've been seeing every single week, and that is this. God is in control. Say that with me. God is in control. That's what this is about. Now, having said that, I'm going to take a little bit of time to try to explain part of what this could mean. And Gabriel refers, you notice, to a time span of 77s. This is commonly understood as 70 sets of seven. And if it means 70 sets of consecutive seven-year periods, then we're looking at a timetable of everything that he said here happening in 490 years. Now, that is if the imagery is meant to be taken literally and sequentially. It could also be interpreted in a symbolic fashion. It could also be interpreted as literally occurring, but with some time in between some of the 70 sets of seven. So, so what is it? Well, the truthful answer is that no one knows for sure. So many books have been written uh, probably one of the most discussed and written about sections in the whole Bible. And I just tell you, if somebody tells you, I know the way it's to be interpreted and all the other ways are wrong, you should probably ignore them, okay? Because so many people have given thought and poured energy and, and, and time into explaining this, and we're still left with a lot of questions. And because of this, it has opened itself up for a lot of people to go into all kinds of speculation. Now, where do most commentators land? Well, I, I, I land where most commentators land, and I think it's the clearest reading of this when we look at all the Bible. I think it is actually a blend of literal years, but are spaced out over time. And, and what we have is references to shorter-term prophecies that are in the past from where we are today, already been fulfilled, but then yet some end-time prophecies yet to, to happen. Now, let me see if I can unpack what I mean. 
let's begin with the correlation that it has to years. So 70 sevens is 490 years, and 70 sets of seven are, are given, if you'll notice, for the accomplishment of, of six things in verse 24. And all of these happen through the Messiah to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, it's pretty obvious of those six things, the first three were clearly accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That leaves the last three, which are also messianic, to be fulfilled at a given time to come. Then Gabriel tells him that the time between the decree authorizing the building of the temple in Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah was to be 69 of those sets of seven. So the 62 sevens plus seven sevens, that's 483 years. And Gabriel basically divides up time this way. He says there will be one thing that happens after seven sets of seven or 49 years, and then there will be 62 sets of seven, and then there will be a final seven floating out somewhere. Gabriel says that, and then he goes back and explains. The set of seven sevens, 49 years, apparently refers to the time of Israel's rebuilding and restoration. The 62 sevens seems to be the, the time following that before the coming of Christ. And it was at the end of those 483 years that the anointed was to be cut down, which is referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. That would leave us, obviously, with a final seven-year period to come at, at some undetermined point in the future. And in that last seven, Gabriel begins to describe what seems to be, when you look at all the Bible, the final end times, war and flood and desolation and persecution. Gabriel says that it is during this 70th week, that final seven-year period, that all of this will be unveiled. And he describes the, the abomination that causes desolation, which gets linked in the New Testament to the Antichrist, the beast who will rise up at the end of the time and defile the temple and end the true worship of the true God and will place himself on, on the temple's throne. And when that happens, we're, we're told that the, the truly dark nature of his evil will be revealed and unveiled, and that will happen at the midpoint of the seven-year period. And if you read Revelation, that's exactly what we see being told, that the Antichrist is going to come, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, it's going to get really, really horrible. Now, let me go back again, having said all that, and see if I can put this together in some sort of chronological scale. What I'm going to share with you is one of the main ways to understand this passage, although, as I've said, there's room to, to see some other ways as well. If the 77s are years, then here's kind of the run of events. There will be a 49-year period for Israel's rebuilding. And if you look at the things that happen shortly after this prophecy, when that officially kicks off until it's done, it's exactly what takes place historically. A prophecy is fulfilled. And then the 62 sevens, which take place up to and including the coming of Christ, without explaining all the historical details, this can be dated from 396 B.C., uh, that takes the final week of Christ, puts it right at 434 years later, and that was the point uh, where we understand Christ was crucified. So we see that fulfilled. And then there's the 70th week, which comes at the end of time, which marks the seven-year tribulation, which is exactly, again, what Revelation talks about in the coming of the Antichrist. Revelation says what Daniel says. 
after three and a half years, tribulation will get particularly intense. The Antichrist will be unveiled for who he is. The last three and a half years will be horrifying beyond belief. And that then will allow for the fulfillment of the three last works of the Messiah that are mentioned in verse 24. When you put all this together, what we, what we see is that we have prophecy from God, which outlines the, the end of time, which has already been fulfilled very specifically in the details that we know about, and then there's more to come. Now, I understand that that's a lot to take in, but what I really want you to hear is the message that's the principle behind all of this, that God is in control, that history is on a timetable, that that timetable unfolds at God's command. That takes us into Daniel chapter 10, and we find another section where Daniel is exposed to a, another vision, and in this vision, he also gets an insider's view, both of prayer and the supernatural realm. Now, Daniel 10 through 12 is really a, a compact uh, section of, of Daniel's fourth and final vision. And if you want to kind of outline it in your mind, think of it this way. You might want to write this down. Daniel 10, we see when and how the vision comes. And then Daniel 11, we hear what the actual vision was. So the vision gets mentioned at the beginning of chapter 10, but we don't really hear what it was until chapter 11. And then Daniel 12 draws the vision to a conclusion and also the whole book to a conclusion. So with that framework in mind, let me read the first part of Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So he's in a period of fasting and seeking God. Um, He's he's depriving himself of some physical uh, necessities in order to be spiritually alert and aware. Verse four, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such, great, such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed or greatly loved, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So Daniel has a vision, and he has a vision that comes through an angel, and this encounter with an angel impacts him physically and emotionally. He describes it as he's, he's visited by a man, which some people see as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, uh, but most would understand as an angel. And this man's appearance was so overwhelming. Did you see this? It, it terrifies the men who were with Daniel, and they run away in terror, even though they can't see anything. They just 
feel something. Daniel sees him, and the sight of this angel paralyzes Daniel. He can't move. And then when the angel speaks, Daniel passes out. I mean, this is unbelievable, awesome stuff. But that's actually nothing compared to the behind-the-scenes information that unfolds next. Look at verses 12 to 14. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now again, these are some of the most fascinating verses in Scripture, and again in them we see this clear connection between Daniel's prayer and God's activity and response. Again, we see the angel saying that this visitation happened in response to Daniel's prayer, and again that reminds us, prayer matters. Prayer changes things. Prayer invites the involvement of God. And people who say, you know, why pray? God is in control. God's going to do what God's going to do. People like that miss the point. People who think that, like some of us, miss the point because the Bible tells us that what God has decided to do sovereignly is to act in response to our prayers. Now, the way this is phrased is intriguing. Since the day Daniel tried to understand and humble himself, his prayer was heard. And again, we saw earlier that Gabriel's appearance showed the immediate power of prayer, the instantaneous reaction of God. But here it's a little different. We see something about perseverance in prayer. And we know as we read this book that Daniel has spent a lifetime persevering in prayer. And so here he has this vision and he prays and he prays to understand it. And now God shows up. Now God takes decisive action. And this tells us something very important. It tells us to never give up in prayer. Never underestimate the cumulative power of prayer. See, I'm very, very confident as I look across this room that there are many of us here, probably all of us here, who have some things in our lives that we have prayed about for a long time and they haven't happened yet and we are tempted to give up. Maybe a person that you prayed for. Maybe a a breakthrough in your life and, and you've found yourself thinking sometimes, you know, when I pray, God should respond right away and if God isn't responding, then I must be doing something wrong or my praying doesn't work or maybe prayer doesn't work. And the answer to that is no, never give up. Never underestimate the cumulative power of prayer. See, the angel is saying, Daniel, I'm here because you prayed and you kept on praying and you kept on praying and you kept on praying. And that reminds us of something else. We need to be willing to labor in prayer, to be willing to be committed to making the investment of our time and our energy to bring things to God regularly over a long period of time and not just throw off casual 20-second prayers and that's all we ever do. To know that the answer may not come right away, but it will come down the road. And when it comes, when it comes in God's perfect timing, it, it will be because sometimes of prayers offered long, long ago perseverance in prayer. Are you willing to labor in prayer? 
a few years ago, there were three guys that started a computer game company. And, and though they put together a lot of computer games and got them out to market, things didn't go so well at first. They had actually created 51 different games that they had sold, but none of them really took off. And they found themselves in this place where they were actually on the verge of bankruptcy. And they decided to just give it one more try. These three guys, they locked themselves in a room. They made a commitment that they were going to come up with you know, 10 different ideas that they would sketch out every day without quitting until something happened. And then one day, one of them sketched a drawing that would eventually lead to this. This is the game. I know, I know this. This is the game that some of you actually play while I'm preaching, okay? <laughs> I know, I know. This is the game that is now the most popular game in the world, like five billion downloads I've read. Perseverance finally one day paid off, right? Have you ever wondered what God might do if we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we never gave up? We were willing to labor in prayer, persevere in prayer. Now, that's not the only provocative glimpse of the supernatural realm that we're given here. Again, in verse 13, it says, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So think about it. What, what we have here is an angel, an angel that made Daniel pass out, an angel that could not be described in words less than fire and thunder. This angel is saying that a prince of a Persian kingdom resisted him for 21 days and that it was only when Michael, the great archangel, rescued him that he was able to bring this message to Daniel. I mean, this, you know, what do you do with that? But there's more. Look at verses 15 and following. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed. That's that phrase, greatly loved. He said, peace. Be strong now. Be strong when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now, again, it's like, welcome to the behind-the-scenes world of the supernatural, the angels. It's like unbelievable stuff, right? I mean, if you've ever read Frank Peretti's novels like This Present Darkness, now you know where he got his ideas. And what we are told here is very fascinating. There are good angels and bad angels, or demons. And evidently, the angels and the demons have something like military-like rankings and that are seemingly associated with actual raw power. And the greatest of these are called princes. You know, the New Testament talks about Satan being the god of this world or, 
ruler of this world. And here we see something of how it might be organized with a demon prince overseeing an actual geographic area or maybe a socio-political domain. What's mentioned here is there's one over Persia, there's one over Greece. You would recognize if you've been with us these weeks, we, we know that at this time Persia was the great political power of the day. We also know that sometime shortly down the line in the future, Greeks is going to follow Persia in that role. And we see here that both of these angels were evil angels or they were demons who were fighting on behalf of their province to control it. Shows us that they were somehow a spiritual force behind an earthly empire. And then we see that Michael was the great and good angelic prince that was at least at that time over Israel. That tells us that the size or power of a country has little to do with how important that area might be in heaven's eyes. Because then Israel was nothing compared to Persia. By contrast, we see that Satan was very concerned with Persia. We were reminded that his schemes are always about power and prestige, about manipulating events and personalities, armies and leaders. He, he focuses on the, the nations of the world with the most influence. Now this tells us, the Bible teaches that there are spiritual powers, both good and bad, behind human institutions and human powers. It also tells us that evidently some demonic princes are stronger in some way than some of God's rank and file angels. Obviously, these demons could not stand in the presence of God, but it, it seems that God in his sovereignty has chosen to allow the angelic realm to have conflict and to allow that conflict to play out. There is actual interaction and conflict between angels and demons. And that means when Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, well, Paul wasn't blowing smoke. Finally, I think we learn that when it comes to the greatest of all time angel, it's very much like basketball. It's always Michael all the way. Now, what should all this mean to us? Well, we need to be very careful here. We, we really just need to let Scripture say what it says, and then we need to be silent where Scripture is silent. We need to recognize that if we go beyond what Scripture says. We are speculating. And when we speculate, we very quickly can put ourselves into places where we're going to run into error and even sometimes into heresy. But I think we can also come back and say there are some things we can safely draw from this. Here's the first thing I would, I would tell you, and you can write it down. Ultimate reality is spiritual. And this is so important for us to be reminded of in a secular age. We are told that everything that's real is what's here, what we see, what we touch. The Bible says no. That is where the battle lies. The ultimate reality is spiritual. Life is not a game. Christianity is not just some philosophy or, or worldview. It is real. That means that what we do as Christians, what we do here as a church at Southwinds really matters. We're in a war. The stakes are very high. Secondly, it also means spiritual warfare is real. And we must not underestimate the forces arrayed against us. Again, I think it's easy for us to think that prayer is just for, you know, devotional purposes, to make our life better, to make ourselves feel better, to have it easier. 
No, prayer is a powerful, eternity-shaping weapon. And so rather than seeing prayer as a retreat or as a passive act, which is the way we do sometimes, we need to see prayer as active and bold. We really can talk about the need for us as Christ followers to get down on our knees and fight. Prayer, spiritual warfare, real. And I don't know, maybe that is the big takeaway for us today. Life and reality are not simply what we can see. And when we pray, we engage the supernatural world. We invest in it. We call on God's activity in the spiritual realm. And as a result of that, in ways that we we hardly begin to grasp sometimes, we bring that supernatural activity into our world as well. You know, I said earlier that I doubt Daniel ever prayed casually again. And maybe, maybe the lesson is that neither should we. Well, Daniel 11, as I mentioned earlier, actually gives us the content of the vision that Daniel received. And here's how it begins in verses two through four. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others when he has gained power by his wealth. He will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because this empire will be uprooted and and given to others. And if those words sound familiar to you, they should. This is a parallel vision to what we saw in Daniel 8. And we hear, hear some words describing Persian kings, and then we move to Alexander the Great and the people that followed him. If you were to keep reading this chapter, and you really should read it on your own, you would discover that Daniel 11 is this extremely detailed account given of history to come. It's a, it, it's a, it's a prophecy, and it's a prophecy that when we study the history, becomes so clear how historically accurate it is. This prophecy was given and it was written down in 536 BC and it is given, in, it is given about events that are gonna start happening 200 years later that are gonna go from the 320s BC all the way to the 160s BC covering the period of the Persian Empire and the Greek empires that follow. If you wanna know more about this, I would suggest that you get a hold of a study Bible. The ESV study Bible has a very clear and very helpful explanation of who all the kings were, what all the alliances they made were, the battles that they fought. And it's all heading towards, as you read chapter 11, it's all heading towards this culmination in a very evil king who's going to come. This very evil king is going to assault God's people in Israel in incredibly vicious and horrible ways. And we know who this king is. History knows him as Antiochus Epiphanes. This, this king is to become, as you'll see if you read through the entire Bible, he is to become a prototype of history's final evil ruler who will one day oppose God and God's people. We know him as the Antichrist. Now, you read through all this detail, you see all these facts and, and ideas of what, what's going to happen being written down, and you think, what's going on here? Well, here's what God is doing. God is flexing his prophetic muscle. Through prophecy, God displays his sovereignty. God is saying to us, his people, I will show you that I am a God who is in control because I will show you that I am a God who foresees the future. I know what will happen because I am in charge. 
And this is intended as God's people. Hear this. Prophecy is not to satisfy our intellectual curiosity about some things. Prophecy is given to replenish our hope, especially when we as God's people are going through difficult, dark times. You see, as we go through history, there will be times especially when the world's kingdoms will have their way with God's people. And that's happening in parts of the world even now. Don't don't miss that. And when that happens, when God's people are suffering, prophecy reminds us that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. God's people may feel like they are stuck in the crosshairs, but God says to them, when you know that I'm in control, that means you can persevere, you can remain faithful, you can trust me. See, that's what this is ultimately about. Daniel 11, verses 32 to 35, concludes the chapter with these words about the evil king uh, Antiochus and about God's people. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. See, it's the question we've really been wrestling with this entire book. How do God's people live in exile? How do God's people survive even when there is persecution? This passage says some who claim to know God will give in. Uh, They will violate the covenant with God by disobeying God's word, by doing things that God has always forbidden, by saying that God's word means something different than it, it has always been known to say. But then it says, the people who know their God will firmly resist him. You see, when we know God, we resist the world's culture. And I just need to ask, As our world's culture flows in directions, do you find that you're just going with that flow? Or do you find that you're standing against it? To follow God faithfully, we need to be the people who are standing against what is not true, standing against what's said that is against God. And that doesn't always turn out so well for God's people. It tells us here some will die by the sword, some will be burned alive, some will suffer the loss of their possessions, but it doesn't matter. Those who know God will firmly resist him, or as the ESV says, they will stand firm and take action. See, we want to be those people who stand firm. We don't want to be the people who violate our covenant with God and disobey his word. We don't want to be the people who compromise with our culture. And that takes us to the final chapter, to Daniel 12. Let me read verses one through four. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. 
Now this chapter, this 12th chapter, wraps up the book by reminding readers of the struggle that we see throughout history, how that struggle ends with resurrection. Resurrection to everlasting life for those who know God. Resurrection to everlasting death for the wicked. See, the truth the Bible teaches is that everyone lives forever, either in everlasting life or death. And that means that we as God's people, we must hold fast to this promise of resurrection and eternal life, even when in this life, in this world, everything seems dark, everything seems bleak. We must hold fast to the hope of resurrection and eternal life, even when everything in our culture tells us we're just losers for following God. We're just losers for continuing to think in the Bible's repressive, intolerant, backward ways. See, if we are wise, and this is what verse 3 says, we will shine God's light like the brightness of the heavens. In fact, I'll put it this way. Wise believers will seek to lead many to righteousness. In other words, when times are difficult, when our culture opposes God's word and God's ways, we don't retreat into a hole and hide ourselves away. We become more bold and we help more people understand truth and life. We, we help lead them to righteousness. Our passion to share God's truth with, with a world that does not want to hear it, that actively resists it, in those times should grow stronger and deeper, the harder that life becomes. Now, the rest of Daniel 12, I will leave it to you to read, and I really hope you take the time. It, it leads us to a couple more things that we need to remember. The first is this. Expect an unparalleled time of suffering and pain for God's people when God brings time to an end. We saw it last week. We're seeing it again this week. There is a war, so we should expect suffering. The rest of the Bible tells us that as well. And then next, because we know that God is in control, that means that we can live in hope for God's ultimate deliverance, no matter what is happening today. Now, there is so much more to see in this book, not only in chapters 10 through 12, but really all the way through the, these very incredible words that God has inspired. And I, I want to leave you with this. I really want to encourage you, now that we have studied the entire book together, it would be so beneficial for you if you would go back and you would read through the entire book slowly, prayerfully, thoughtfully, meditatively, listening again to what God's saying to you through it, and then read it again. Uh, let God teach you what he wants you to know from his revelation to Daniel here. I want to leave you with one thing. I'm going to go back to that opening paragraph in Daniel 12, verses 1 through 4, where Daniel tells us that everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And I want to ask you a question before we close. Is your name written in God's book of life? Amen. The truth is this. We don't like to think about it, but it's the truth. One day, we will all die. Every human being who has ever lived has died. I've joked with you before that every once in a while, they take a survey about this, and it always ends up hovering right around 100%. Everybody dies. 
But the Bible also reminds us that every human being who has ever lived also lives forever. And when you die, whether you awake to everlasting life or whether you awake to shame and everlasting contempt all depends on this. Is your name written in God's book? How do you know that your name is written in God's book of life? How do you get your name written in God's book of life? The Bible says there is only one way, and that way is a person, and that person's name is Jesus. You see, it is not about how good we are. No one can be good enough to receive God's life and salvation. The Bible says we've never been good enough, and we never will be good enough. The Bible says there is only one who is good enough, and that is Jesus, God's son, who died on the cross for our sins, who bore the punishment that we all deserve for our law-breaking. Only Jesus can put your name in the book of life. How do you get your name written there? Well, I have very good news. All you have to do, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is say, Jesus, Forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you. I want to trust you for salvation. Will you write my name in your book of life? See, the Bible calls that the gospel. And the gospel comes only by grace. It's a gift and it's free. And all you have to do is ask for it and receive it. My prayer as we conclude the Daniel Project is that everyone who is here at Southwinds would know the God of Daniel, the most high God, the God of heaven, the God whose dominion is forever, whose kingdom is everlasting. Please, please do not leave this place without giving your life to the God who gave himself for you on the cross in the person of his son. You can do that today. Will you pray with me as we bow our heads? God, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for grace. We thank you for this portion of of your word, God, that teaches us that you are in control and that you win the victory ultimately. And we know today, Lord, that it is through your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that Jesus took that stand all alone in the most decisive battle for our souls and that at the cross, Satan did his worst. But Jesus, you conquered, you defeated him. You destroyed death and evil. And we thank you today that your victory is counted to us and that all we have to do is ask to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in you and you will write our names in your book of life. Father, I pray that even now that there are those who will give their lives to you as you open their eyes. Lord, we thank you for all of us here that because of your victory, we can know great assurance and confidence and hope in this dark, sin-filled world. And we can trust you because you are God and you are in control. Lord, I just pray that you would make us at Southwinds a people who are bold for you, who are courageous for you. Lord, a people who have have great contentment in you. We ask these things now, Father, in the name of your Son, and all God's people said, amen.